0: Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with former NBA GM, Pat Williams. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fantastic. And now, here's your host,
1: Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with one of the most influential people in NBA history. He's been a world champion general manager, a senior vice president, written several books, and is a world-renowned motivational speaker. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Pat Williams. Pat, thanks for coming on the program.
2: Brett, thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our chat. I hope you're doing well.
1: This is cool, and man, I got a lot for you. One of the for, – for those of you listening to the Boom Podcast, this should be really interesting. Pat has, has done a lot of things, quite quite the resume, and it was really cool doing my research on you to, to get into it a little bit. Uh, all the things Pat Williams has done in his career, and it's an impressive list. Uh, did you have trouble with the breaking ball, Pat? <laughs>
2: Well, Brett, my roots are in baseball. I know. I grew up in the Philadelphia area, Wilmington, Delaware. Had some wonderful baseball opportunities as a, as a youngster. Uh, my best friend in school, since the time we were four years old, was, was the late Roley Carpenter, the uh, longtime owner of the Phillies. So I had a lot of uh, privileges and opportunities in baseball with him. I played. We... In in high school, Rooley, we were classmates and teammates. Rooley was the pitcher. I was the catcher. Uh, He went on to Yale, where he played two sports. I went to Wake Forest uh, to catch for the Demon Deacons baseball team. And then I spent two years as a minor league catcher in the Phillies organization. Spent both those years in Miami and the Florida State League. And yes, Brett, they, uh, they threw nasty breaking balls. Uh, And after two years of that, the Phillies said, uh, your future looks better behind a desk than behind the plate. (laughs) And and that's how my front office career started. I spent uh, five years running minor league ball clubs for the Phillies, four of those years in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And it was in that setting that uh, Dr. Jack Ramsey offered me a job uh, running the front office for the 76ers. I was 28 years old, hadn't thought about basketball as a career at all. And uh, the next thing you know, I'm the GM of the Chicago Bulls and then Atlanta, and 12 years with the 76ers, and uh, then uh, ended up the effort to bring uh, an expansion team here to Orlando
1: 35 years ago. So that's uh, kind of an interesting little path. Thanks. It really is. I mean, and, and I checked you out. I checked. I had to figure out. I said, how, how was Pat as a hitter? And I checked you out first year you hit 295. I'm going, Brett, that ain't true. bad. That I, ain't
2: bad. I did. I did as a backup catcher <clears throat> in Miami. I hit 295 in that in that role. Uh, my biggest claim to fame uh, that year, I was Ferguson Jenkins, first catcher in organized baseball. Really, Uh, the Phillies Phillies had signed Fergie uh, that spring, uh, eighteen years old out of Chatham, Ontario, and they sent him to Miami. And I got to catch him. uh, He—they didn't have rookie ball in those days, and Fergie, uh, you know, was uh, well. You knew that he had a great future, and I—and to this day, he. He always introduces me. This is my first catcher in baseball, Pat Williams, and I always feel very honored. But And, and our left fielder uh, was a future American League batting champion by the name of Alex Johnson. Uh, so those were the two significant players on our team. Uh, the manager, Brett, was Andy Semenik, the longtime Phillies catcher, who was your dad's uh, mentor and tutor. Uh, when he switched positions and became a catcher, Andy had a big influence in, in Bob Boone's life. So uh, that, that it's interesting to look at all that.
1: It, it, and it's awesome. And, and I want to get into it a little bit later, the NBA part. It's it's mind-blowing to me, the things you did. And then all of a sudden, well, you know, baseball is really my thing, but I'm just going to go be a GM over here in Philadelphia. Then I'm going to go to the Bulls. <laughs> it's it's really interesting. And like I said, we'll get to that. So you're born in Philadelphia. You said that raised in uh, Wilmington, Delaware. I kind of just want to go back to the beginning. You mentioned Ruley Carpenter. Wow, such cool memories I have, Pat, as as a little kid in, in Philadelphia when Dad's playing for the Phillies, and I always remember Rulie Carpenter. It was he was just. He's the owner of the Phillies, but he just had a calmness about him. And and even at five, six, seven years old, I remember, oh, that's the owner. He's really cool. And he always had right. those dark rimmed but- glasses on. I I, I can yeah. remember Rooley vividly. And, you know, if people don't know out there, Rooley recently uh, passed away. But what a great man. That was back uh, – when the owners of professional franchises it was a family business and, and it was different you know now we're into the kind of the corporate world and it is big time business but that's back in a in a quieter generation where where the owners there were a lot of truly really carpenters out there that that their families owned these individual franchises uh, like i said that's changed quite a bit over the years but we'll get to Rooley more too. Cause I have, I have nothing but fond memories of him. So take me through it. Pat Williams is a little kid. I know baseball was your passion. Uh, just take me through your childhood.
2: Well, Brett, I grew up in a sports minded family. My dad was a high school history teacher and, and a, and a coach baseball coach. Uh, my mother was a homemaker and a huge sports fan. And uh, my dad took me to my first major league baseball game, uh, July uh, June fifteenth, Sunday doubleheader, nineteen forty seven. Uh, the Philadelphia A's were still in town. The Philadelphia was a two sport baseball city, and we went up to the Sunday doubleheader: the Athletics and the Cleveland Indians. Uh-oh. And walking into and Brett walking into Shibe Park uh, changed my life as a seven year old. I was absolutely uh, impacted immediately by the sights and the sounds and the smell and the color of baseball it, it just it just overwhelmed me and i woke up the next morning on that monday morning the 16th of june 1947 and i knew exactly what i wanted to do with my life i wanted to be a ball player and and from that point on uh, until the Phillies uh, said, that's it. And, uh, you know, at age 23, uh, that's what drove me. And, uh, every weekend, my mom, she was the baseball nut. We would drive up to Shy Park and see either an A's game or a Phillies game. And that, that went on all the way into, well, until I could drive myself or take the train. <clears throat> I was, uh. I was a base a rabid, rabid baseball fan and an autograph collector and, and a baseball card collector and my life just gravitated around baseball.
1: Interesting to look back. Those are the years, the Ray Boone years, forty seven. Forty seven? When did grandpa retire? I think sixty. Well, I think 60. Brad, I, I I stood
2: outside and I've got a I've got a story about your grandfather. Um, here, well, let's here's, hear it. <laughs> here's, here's, here's what it was. Uh, the, um, Tigers were in for a, for a Sunday doubleheader. Can't re- quite remember the year. It might've been 52. And, uh, I, at that 53, at that point I could go up from Wilmington on the train. So the game was over and you, you immediately headed over uh, to the North Philadelphia train station. It was about a 10 minute walk from the ballpark. And uh, because you knew the visiting team was going to be getting on a train, uh, and, and heading to their next stop, it was all train travel. And so I slipped into the tiger's train, uh, which you weren't, weren't meant to do, but I got on the train seeking autographs and I, and I, I walked into one of those little booths and, uh, and this guy looked at me and he said, what the heck are you doing in here? <laughs> I said, well, I was just getting autographed. He said, you're not allowed on this train. It was your grandfather. Really? It was Ray, Ray Boone who said, you, what the heck are you doing here?
1: <laughs> I always I always knew he was a mean guy, Pat. <laughs>
2: well, he wasn't mean, but he, he he made it pretty clear that little autograph seekers were not allowed on the Tigers private train you can get the autographs out on the concourse but nevertheless that was the first time I met your grandfather and uh, I I met him numbers of times after that but uh, I was 12 years old and and he was uh, with the Tigers and said get off this train son this is not meant for you so, Man. anyway, Brett, I, I go way back with your family. And then, of course, when I came back as the general manager of the 76ers in the summer of 1974, uh, that's when I first met Bob and Sue Boone. Uh, they had just, Bob had just come up. He just started his career as a Phillies catcher. And I had just returned as the GM of the 76ers. And now that's where I first made contact with the Boone family
1: oh that's cool and and you know so many stories Pat I've heard over the years um, from my grandpa and you know now that he's been gone for for a while you know you, you <laughs> when you're going through it and Gramps is about to sit down and and roll out that that classic uh, Ted Williams story or or uh, any of the millions of stories you have for me. You know, I kind of, I was a young kid kind of roll my eyes, you know what I wouldn't give now to hear those stories again. But when you talk about those days and and it just seemed, you know, it's a different generation for me. So I, I never got to see, I I was lucky enough. I got to grow up in those seventies, seventies, uh, you know, in the clubhouse in the seventies with those those classic teams. That's kind of the heyday. Usually your childhood are, are some of the most vivid memories and, and cool memories. So I love those 70s baseball when there was only two teams that made it from each league. There was one round of playoffs and you go to the World Series and, and I have such fond memories. But to go back in time if I could. And like like you said, being on that train in the 50s, the old-time baseball players with those big wool uniforms that were so So hot. But I don't know. It just seems, you know, I see the old footage and I just think, wow, just for a day, if I had a time machine, I'd like to just go back and see what it was like for those guys. There was no there were no flights and there were no first class. You were you were in a train. Gramps used to tell me he had such a good rapport with the umpires back then. The umpires were going the train with them from city to city. Yes. So man, that's, that's when, when you tell a story like that, I just think, wow, just for one day, if, you know, if I had a genie in a bottle, it's like, I'd like to just go back and, and see what it was like in the forties and the fifties of baseball. And then another day, I'd like to go back to like the, the Ruth era and and check that out see what it was all You know, it just seemed when it was so pure, then it was, you know, it was really America's pastime. There is not a lot of the hoopla that goes on today. Not that I don't like a lot of it, but I I would just love to go back. I think a lot of just big time baseball fans would love to do that. But obviously we can't do it anyway. All right. Let me go ahead.
2: Let me just say this. The best way to go back to that period is, is through reading is through books. And, and baseball has always been the number one book sport in our country, and it remains that way. I guess golf is up there somewhere, but, uh, but the baseball books really are the best way to get uh, get a good sense of the past. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this right now. A new book has just come out that, has, uh, that I am absorbed with. It's called The Baseball 100, and the writer Joe Posnanski has, has done it. And he's and he's taken, in his opinion, the hundred greatest baseball players of all time. He ranks them one hundred down to one, and he does a major essay on each each player. Uh, the book, well, it consists of over uh, well almost eight hundred and fifty words, uh, but but he goes back and and the old timers are there. He's got uh, Honus Wagner and Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb and Luke Gehrig and Babe Ruth among, among his uh, old, old players and others. And then modern players, uh, Mike, Mike Trout made the list. And, uh, it's a marvelous read. And, and when you finish Brett, you're saying, Ooh, I'm, I, I can, I can go back with these guys. I can, I can uh, picture being with Ty Cobb on the bench. And so, uh, get that book, the baseball 100 by Joe Paz And, uh, Uh, it'll you'll be completely riveted
1: very cool all right so you go to wake forest go there to play baseball Uh, you go on after the after your wake forest days to you get your master's from indiana and your doctorate at flagler uh i've got so many questions for you pat seven years in the army uh i remember you know and and this is when i was a little little kid i mean two or three years old i remember my dad I think my dad was in the reserves and I think it was quite common back in those days, but I remember those black boots and they were in this army bag, this green bag. And I'm like, what is dad mm. doing? I thought he was a baseball player. What is, what is all this army equipment? I can still picture those boots right now. You spent seven years in the yard. I don't know how you fit all this in. Uh, well, well, Brett, let me talk to you for a minute about
2: that, about that period in the sixties. Okay. On into the mid seventies, that period of about uh, ten years or so. Uh, that was the Vietnam War era and And there was a draft, there was an open draft, and uh, you wanted to avoid that draft any way you could and 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 ball players in all sports were, were prime prospects to be drafted, and the teams uh, dreaded having a player gone for two years. And so they had a whole arsenal of people helping young ball ballplayers get into, into an, either an Army Reserve unit or into a National Guard unit. And that's what happened to me as well in 1964, uh, the year that the Phillies had that huge lead going into September. And, well, I, I ended up at, in Fort Jackson, South Carolina for eight weeks of basic training and then eight more weeks in Fort Polk, Louisiana. And then when you got out of those 16 weeks of training, you had a seven-year obligation to, to the Army, uh, one weekend a month, uh, a two-week summer camp, etc. cetera. And, and the, the, the Phillies, I know, and other teams had full-time people just, just keeping that whole thing going, getting these ballplayers into reserve units. And, and that's exactly what happened to your dad. He was prime prospect to be drafted, got into a, a unit, and um, was able to keep his baseball career going. So your, your memory is correct, Brett.
1: Those black boots. I remember those black boots.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. So we all had them. And, Brett, you had to have those things spit polished every day. Yep. I mean, just spit polished so you could see your face in them. Uh, and so I have, I, I, I struggled. I was so, Oh, I dreaded doing all that, but I'm, I'm, I look back now and I'm glad, you know, that I got a taste of the military and I spent time, you know, in the army and I have a, a, a great sense of what a young soldier goes through. And I, I can still remember my, you know, the sergeants that ran that unit. And I can remember some of the guys that were in there with me. Um, so, uh, but fortunately, today uh, we have a volunteer army. Uh, the draft has been done away with, and we we have an army, navy, you know, uh, marines, all all manned by volunteers, and it seems to be working pretty well.
1: I know a guy that was pretty influential in your life, uh, Bill Vec. what what influences Bill Vec? Now, Bill Vec is the 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 original or not maybe not the original but the owner of the white Sox, and he was known for his pr work in the game the his promotional skills i know he he played a big role in your life talk to me a little bit about bill Vec.
2: well brett i want to tell you this story in 1962 i had signed with the phillies and i'm down in miami we have a day off it's july of 62 And I was downtown browsing around. There was a department store. I went up into the bookstore. And there on a table was this book uh, called VEC as in Wreck. And there was Bill VEC on the front cover picture. And uh, he was at a ballpark. And uh, kind of had his uh, leg up on the chair and uh, a story of baseball's incorrigible maverick. I bought the book and was absolutely riveted. I mean, I knew of Bill Vec. You know, I'd followed his career as the owner of the Cleveland Indians, and then the St. Louis Browns, then the White Sox. This book came out in 62. And uh, the, the ball club I was playing for at the time, the Miami Marlins, had an executive who knew Bill Veck. And at the end of the season, I said, would you call him and, and see if I could go visit him. I visited him. So I went back home to Wilmington, Delaware. He lived in Easton, Maryland, at the time, which was about a two-hour drive. And I made the call to Bill Vec. I was nervous, and uh, he he answered the phone. I still remember the phone number: T A two four five four five. And Bill Vec answered the phone. I told him who I was. He was he he, he, had, he knew I was calling. He invited me down. Brad and I went down. Uh, on a beautiful September afternoon. I got there about 11.30, I can remember it vividly. Uh, He was sitting out on the porch of his house, had his shirt off, his leg was off. He lost his leg in World War II. He was there reading a book, which was what he did. And uh, I was just hoping to shake hands and leave. He invited me for lunch, and about five hours later I left. And and I didn't realize at the time what an enormous impact that was going to have uh, for 25. I've never worked with him or for him, but for 25 years, he was a mentor. He was a friend. Uh, he was an inspiration. And uh, he he guided my career in those early days. And uh, Bill Beck has been a hero ever since. Uh, he's still, uh, that book, by the way, is still one of the three or four best baseball books ever written vec is in wreck, and uh i'm i'm proud of brett to be a, a bill vec disciple uh there are not many of us left but uh he certainly impacted everything i've done to this day in many many different ways
1: so in 62 you sign we went over that you go to what uh, what was it called then because there wasn't rookie ball it was a d league i believe it was, Brett back in those the days. D, the mighty muscles. It was, there was a D league.
2: They, they had no rookie ball. So we had D, we had C, we had B, we had A, we had double A, we had triple A. And eventually right. baseball did away with D, C, and B. And uh, they simply had A ball, double A, and triple A. Then they broke it down further with low A and high A. And and that's how it's been ever since. I think I think what it did to brand your your, your product as as D ball, uh, that that didn't have a good ring to it. Uh, so even, even the later, the Florida State League became an A league, and uh, that that had a, a a better sales
1: pitch to it.
2: But those yeah, those, it's it's red, like those,
1: well, they didn't put the F league in there. <laughs> that would have been even worse than the D league.
2: Well, yeah, you're right. So I think that, I think they got that right. But Brett, uh, the the best thing that ever happened to me was riding the buses through the state of Florida. Those two those two seasons, um, I got to I got to um, get the sense of what a ball player's life is like. I I got a sense of uh, minor league ballparks. I got a sense of watching young prospects. Um, I got a sense of um, what life is like in in that world of professional athletics, and uh, it made a, an enormous difference. And uh, and I, I I kept playing, Brett. When I came to Florida, when we moved to Florida in 1986, uh, I discovered what was going on down here: uh, fantasy camps, dream dream weeks of baseball, and uh, I had an opportunity for well, I think for. Almost over well over 20 years in the winter, uh, going to the Phillies camp or the Yankees camp or the uh, different uh, camps around Florida and, and catching you know, in those old timer games. So I, I kept the tools of ignorance on for many years until my last Phillies camp. I was 70 years old when I figured
1: this. That's about it. Well, that that's pretty awesome though. You're you're off uh, doing all the things you're doing in the NBA, and hey, we're gonna have the we're gonna we're gonna have the general manager for the Philadelphia 76ers at fantasy camp, and and you're you're just like because I've been to those fantasy camps and and for so many uh, baseball fans, it's such. I mean, that's the week. You know, some people are golfers, some people are hunters, but those fantasy leaguers, they look, they have that on their calendar all year, and they just they're the happiest people in the world when they get there and they're hanging with their, their heroes from the past. It's really a cool thing to watch and uh, just see the, the enjoyment they the, and the satisfaction they get out of just strapping it on. And, and, you know, there's some muscles that get pulled and there's some guys that probably shouldn't be out there, but, but they uh, it's their passion. It's what they love. And it's really a cool thing to see. And I, and I think uh, that's, in my mind and obviously I'm biased it separates baseball from everything else it's it's something that you can do and and, and get to rub elbows with your heroes and it's pretty awesome to hear that that you used to do that <laughs> and it's just funny to me that you you know you're you're doing big things in the NBA but you still have time for that week of fantasy camp 64 yeah,
2: and, and, and your dad was always there Brett he never caught uh but he was always always there in the dugout and and uh, mixing and mingling, and uh, we always got a chance to spend time together at the fantasy camp. And uh, he would always critique my catching back there, catching. But the 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 low light or the highlight of that those Phillies weeks, Brett was was catching Mitch Williams, uh, the Wild Thing, and and he had he had not been told it was a fantasy camp. Uh, he had not been told that these were. Sixty-year-old doctors and dentists from Philadelphia, and he he was out there firing BBs, <laughs> and I I was doing my best to try and hang on to them, and uh, so so Mitch was, uh, and the other guy that it, it, over the years that I caught one time was Bob Gibson, and and the great Bob Gibson, uh, Brett, he did not realize it was Fantasy Camp, and he was he was humming hard, you know, and those guys. <laughs> We we were trying flailing away, trying to hit it. Uh, and I would always encourage him. I said, "You can go home and and tell people that you got struck out by Bob and There's nothing nothing to be ashamed of. That's <laughs> right. He, nothing wrong with that. He, yeah he he, uh, he he showed him no mercy, and neither did the Wild Thing.
1: 1964, you become the business manager for the Marlins, the team that you played for that, that previous year. Uh, you go on to be the general manager for the Spartanburg Phillies. And in 67, you get recognized as minor league executive of the year. So this is where it, it changes for me. And it's so interesting. And it's such a unique story. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to go to hoops. 1968. And uh, you go to the 76ers. Then you're at first – the business manager you know that that'll roll into a general manager role and and uh and so on and so forth it goes through a long career over 51 years in in the nba but when you made that i mean you're coming out all right 67 you're minor league executive of the year and then you just wake up and say you know what i'm going to hoops i'm going to the sixers how did that how did that all transpire well, Brent, it,
2: it, 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 it's the 68th season now, my fourth year in Spartanburg. In fact, it was the day of the Western Carolinas League All-Star Game. I do remember that. It was a July afternoon. I walked him into my office, and there was a, a, a phone call to return on a pink slip. You don't have them anymore. But And it was to a, a Jack Ramsey in Inglewood, California. And I thought... Jack Ramsey, that, he was the longtime coach at St. Joe's in Philadelphia, a general manager of the 76ers. What in the world would he be doing calling me at, at Duncan Park in Spartanburg? So I returned the call, and sure enough, it was Jack Ramsey. And he, he explained he was in Inglewood completing the trade, sending Wilt Chamberlain to the Lakers. And he also informed me that he was going to take over the coaching duties in addition to his GM job. And he was going to need somebody to run his front office, and he wanted to talk to me about it. Now, now, Brett, you talk about God's timing. I, I had never met Jack Ramsey. He didn't know. He didn't know me. Uh, but somehow, he had learned about what we were doing in Spartanburg, and I flew up to Philadelphia twice that summer for meetings and interviews and psychological testing and so forth, and. And at the end of all that, they offered me the job, a three-year contract, $20,000 a year. And Brett at that time, that was, I felt like a millionaire because I was making about $800 a month, you know, as a a minor league GM. And so uh, I I said that, and that was the first opportunity I had to get to a big league franchise in, in, in the major leagues of sports. And so I made the jump I hadn't planned on it, but I, I left. And now I'm running the front office for the 76 years and Jack Ramsey's out off coaching the ball club. And I mean, what a year that was, Brett, I was 28 years old and, um, I, I took all my Bill Vex stuff, all my marketing and my promotion stuff and, and started wheeling it into the Philadelphia sports scene and, and it worked. Uh, we we had we had we had good results and uh, the team did pretty well but we we began to draw some good crowds and we got a good buzz going with all these different things we were doing and before I knew it at the one year mark the Chicago Bulls wanted me to fly out and talk to them about their GM job it, things were happening very fast and 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 I. I accepted that job, and I moved after one year in Philly to Chicago and uh, spent four years as the GM of the Chicago Bulls. I loved my time in Chicago. I loved the city. Uh, And we began to get pro basketball stirring out there. But Pro basketball had never worked in Chicago, Uh, but we began to see some results, and uh, those four years in Chicago were very special to me.
1: And you go at the the emergence of Benny the Bull that's you and uh, <laughs> Benny the Bull I want to hear about that but then you go to the Atlanta Hawks in 73 and this is what I think was was attributed to you and and how highly uh, in that in that arena in the professional sports world you were thought of is because in 74 your owner comes in and says hey I need you back. And he, and he lures you back to the Sixers after leaving there, I believe in 70. Um, But give me, give me a little Benny, the bull. And then talk to to me about coming back to, to the original, which was the uh, Sixers in 74, which you'd be in Philadelphia for the next 13 years. Well, Brett, I, um, I did
2: go to Chicago and we, we thought, boy, we got to stir things up here and try and get something going. And, I thought, uh, there's never been a mascot in pro sports. I uh, wonder, wonder if we could do that. And so we, we got a costume created, and I found a businessman he was, who was loony enough to volunteer to wear it. And, uh, and that's how Benny the bull, who still is alive and well in Chicago, he's gone through eight or 10 different uniform uh, changes and probably 10 or 12 different people have worn the suit. But, uh, that's how Benny the Bull started in uh, October of 1969, prancing around the Chicago stadium. Uh, we had four good years there that we got to the playoffs and we began to draw some good crowds. The team was sold uh, to a group. And, and by the way, Brett, it, in this new group was a, uh, a shipbuilder from Cleveland, Ohio. It turned out his name was George Steinbrenner. And, and that's how I met George Steinbrenner as one of the new owners of the Bulls. But it was time to leave, and I took the uh, the Hawks job in, in Atlanta. At the end of that year, another uh, big moment, we traded Pete Maravich. He had come to the end in Atlanta. It just wasn't working, and we traded him to the new expansion team in New Orleans. Uh, that's my Pete Maravich story, and... Right after that, uh, the Bulls' GM job was open, and Irv Kozloff, who owned the club, uh, invited me back and offered the GM job, and I took it and uh, returned home, uh, back to Philadelphia. And for the next 12 years, uh, that's where we were. And this this was the Julius Irving era. This was uh, the Doug Collins era. This was George McGinnis and then eventually moses malone and that led to we got to the finals four times and finally won it in 1983. Uh, the next year we drafted charles barkley uh 12 memorable years brett and, and as i said that's uh that's when i became good friends with your dad who was catching for the phillies uh you were just a little todd and aaron was even younger and um We we became really good friends with the Boone family. So now it's uh, 1986. Uh, We've won the title. Uh, Julius is coming close to retirement. Bobby Jones has announced his retirement. And I just sense it was time to take on another challenge. Uh, The ultimate challenge, Brett, is, is an expansion team, to start up your own team. And I, I made a link with some ownership here in in Orlando and uh, some government officials. And I left Philadelphia and came down here. It was a big risk. Uh, could we you know, muster up enough support and enough enthusiasm to sell the NBA to put a new team in Orlando? And we started that up in uh, a, uh, June of '86, and in April of '87, uh, the NBA awarded four new franchises, expansion teams, Miami, Orlando made it, Charlotte, and Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, that's how those four teams got in, and uh, I've just stayed here. I got uh, Florida uh, uh, thoroughly into my blood system, and uh, we've, we've been here ever since.
1: All right. Well, I'm I'm not letting you out this this easy of the Philly days, because that's you know I mentioned that that's my favorite time in history, my childhood. You know those ten hmm. years in the '70s, watching those Phillies and and Pittsburgh Pirates and Dodgers and Cincinnati Reds. Man, I, I remember those so vividly. But it was a time in Philadelphia where. In my childhood, where I remember, oh, Julius Irving, and my favorite was Andrew Tony. Aaron's favorite, Mo Cheeks, still to this day. Yes, mm. Aaron Boone, who's your favorite basketball player ever? Without a doubt, it's Mo Cheeks. You mentioned Moses mm. Malone, Bobby Jones, the sixth man with the left-handed point when somebody would give him a good assist. I remember that uh, Doug Collins, man, I used to shoot hoofs with Doug Collins, and he'd he'd uh, he'd be in like a Indian style position. And he would challenge me. I could stand up at the free throw and he'd shoot him from his butt. I remember that at an early age, but such a cool city, uh, Pat in, in the seventies and eighties in Philadelphia. I mean, you had the Sixers, you had the, the, the flyers, the Eagles. We had Ron Jaworski on recently talked about those days and I, and, You know, obviously, I remember the most 1980 Phillies. They won the World Series. But all four teams, I believe, in 1980, were in the finals. Phillies were the only one to win it. But what was that? What was your perspective that was going on in the city of Philadelphia right in that time frame? Because I remember as a kid, I couldn't imagine a better city, sports-wise, and and how good all four of the franchises were doing at that particular time. Was that just me being a kid, or, or was it that electric at that time?
2: Well, Brett, it was. Uh, let, let just take that decade from the mid-70s to the mid-80s. Uh, the Flyers won two titles. Uh, the Eagles got to the Super Bowl, didn't win it, but they got there. Uh, we got to the finals four times and, uh, and, and finally won it in 83. The Phillies uh, got to two World Series. They won it in 80. They, they lost to the Orioles in 83. This was all going on in that decade. And then to top it all off Brett in 1985 Villanova wins the NCAA basketball tournament. Uh right there in the middle of all that. Uh it was remarkable what happened you know, athletically in the city of Philadelphia during that decade that you were growing up. And and so your your memories are are accurate and we had uh we had a remarkable group of stars. Uh the Phillies of course were you know, this was the Steve Carlton, Pete Rose era, Mike, Michael Jack Schmidt and Gary Maddox and, uh, and Bob Boone and Larry Boa, and Manny Trio. And you mentioned all the key names in basketball, Brett. And that was a remarkable group. Uh, I don't follow hockey that closely, but I knew that, that was the Bobby Clark era. Bernie uh, Perrant. He, yeah. Yeah. It was, they, had, they, had some, they had some studs. And then you mentioned Jaworski. My favorite Eagle was the running back Wilbert Montgomery. Yep. I guess my real f- favorite Eagle was the coach Dick Vermeil, who, who still to this day is uh, is a tremendous hero in Philadelphia. So uh, it was a, it was a, a golden era of sports in Philadelphia, Brett. Uh, there's there was never anything like anything like it before. Hasn't been anything like it since and may and may never be. I mean what what happened in that decade is almost impossible.
1: And it it man it must have been tough building that championship caliber team uh, you know on the basketball side you had to deal with the Celtics and and Showtime with the Lakers. I mean Bird was the thorn of a lot of franchises but especially the Sixers and I remember those battles. You know, and even as kids it's like Oh, Bird, and the you know the Celtics are coming to town and Parrish, and oh, oh man, I remember those. And it's like, wow. And then the Lakers had come to town with Magic and Kareem, and it was just a cool time. Yeah, the short shorts, Pat. I know you still have the short shorts at home, but <laughs> I love I love the short shorts days. It, it's just really cool, really cool.
2: Special time, Brett, and of course you you you've hit on the rivalry with the Celtics and and also that uh, they talk a lot about the laker boston rivalry but we had an intense rivalry with the lakers
1: without a we doubt we got to
2: the final we got to the finals with them in 1980 again in 82 again in 83 and finally we won won it we had acquired moses malone by then and he was the big difference but uh, those were <clears throat> special rivalries that uh, that just uh, well i guess they're still out there but uh, nothing quite like what we remember in Philadelphia.
1: And we had Charles uh, Barkley on the show, and he talked about. And I asked him that question. I said, "Who was biggest influence in your life?" And he mentioned, uh, without skipping a beat, Moses Malone, and and how he took him under his wing when he first signed you. You drafted Charles, and uh, I believe it was eighty. Was it eighty six? Is that when Barkley we came? Drafted, Brad, it was nineteen eighty four. Okay, you was, drafted that Charles that in eighty four. That was a remarkable, to... remarkable. Yeah. How was Charles as a young player? I want to hear the, the 84 version of Charles Barkley. He, he tried to well, tell man. me what he was like, but I want to hear it from somebody <laughs> who watched it.
2: Well, Brad, it, it, we had an interesting time with Charles. We had, we had acquired an extra first round pick for that draft. And it turned out to be the fifth pick. Um, Michael Jordan, of course, and Elijah And, you know, it was a special draft. So Charles is there at uh, the fifth pick. And, and it, was, it was a nervous time. Uh, we had followed him, we had scouted him. Uh, but when you break it down, he was six foot four. Uh, he, he, when we, we brought him in and weighed him, he weighed 292 pounds. And, and we're thinking, what are we going to do? I mean, we, we know his skill level, but he's 6'4, 292. What, what are we going to do with this guy? So we sent him home and said, come in right before the draft. And, and we want you to, to have lost 20 pounds. He came in, we weighed him, uh, Braddy weighed 292. Uh, and, and I, I, I've made a living on the banquet circuit. Just kidding about Charles weight. Um, you know, we said, uh, Charles, you, you gotta go get in shape. And he said, Mr. Williams round is a shape. Uh, I I said, Charles, you you know, a a Big Mac in both hands is not a balanced meal. Charles, you've got to start eating from the six major food groups, and a month later, there were only two left. Oh, I I had a field day with Charles, but so what happened, Brett? We drafted him, we brought him, and he came into the summer league at Princeton uh, that summer unsigned. Well, that was was a, a major indication that there was something going on with his kid, something special, and he came in and dominated that summer league. Oh, he was he was wonderful, and and we spent I mean getting him signed. We must have spent three weeks putting in weight clauses, uh, and 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 I never you never had to check it again because the weight issue was never there, never never an issue with Charles. He probably p- played around uh, 250, 260. Uh, But boy, he was something he could bang on the boards and he could dribble the ball and he could lead a break and he could pass the ball. I mean, he was a multiple skilled guy and um, is a basketball hall of famer, one of the 50 greatest players of all time and uh, still has left a slew of memories. And now, Brett, Brett, we get to see him. It starts this week. We get to see Charles all over again on television. And he's he's a refreshing soul out there. You know, whatever's on his mind, he's going to tell you. And uh, one of the but a very kind guy, a very nice guy. Whenever I uh, encounter him, he will always there's Pat Williams. He's the guy that drafted me. You know, he always makes a big fuss over me. And I try to make a big fuss over him. He's he's quite a guy.
1: He really is. And he's, you know, and, and he knows it at this point, but he's just there's not too many Charles Barkley. You know, he, he, he brings a lot of knowledge and a lot of personality, but there's something else about Charles. He's got that it factor that not too many people I've ever met have. And he, he likes to speak his mind. He likes to tell it like it is, but he has that unbelievable ability no matter what he says no matter how far out there it is is the fan sits there and listens and goes "Ah, that's just charles being charles and he can get away with it stuff that that normal people normal skilled commentators they'd say the same thing and they can't get away with it something about Charles. It's just that it factor. And you're right. It's refreshing to listen to him. I love listening. I can listen to Charles all night and I think a lot of people can, and that's why you see him so much. But uh, yeah, what a, what a good, what a good guy. He really really is.
2: Got a, got a kind heart. And uh, you know, to people that have been part of his life, he'll always make a big fuss over you. And uh, you know, he's always very generous in his praise of his old teammates. Uh, he, he has a special uh, special place in his heart for Julius. Uh, but Moses uh, taught uh, Charles uh, the importance of, um, of banging the boards and going after every rebound and leading the league in sweat equity and uh, you know, just grinding it out. And Moses was not the most gifted guy in the world, but he was a, he was a grinder. And that's how he we went about his game. And I think, I think Charles learned a lot from him.
1: You mentioned 83. You, you, you won, you won, finally won it in the NBA finals. 86, you leave Philly, you call it a risk going to the magic. Um, Eighty-seven was when the magic, I believe, was formulated. But eighty-nine is when it made it was really official. Uh, in your right. first in your first year, you draft Penny Hardaway, Shaquille O'Neal. They were they were uh, they were neighbors of mine in Florida. That's when I was when I was living in Florida uh, during the offseason, uh, wherever I was playing at the time. I made my my home down in Windermere. We um, reached the finals yeah. in nineteen ninety five, but. But how was that process for you? It was all brand new. Like you said it was a risk. Uh, take me through those years when you from leaving Philly, formulating the magic and then what was to transpire after that.
2: Well, Brett, the first job was to try and convince this community and the NBA that Orlando was worthy of being a major league sports city. Uh, there'd never been a major league franchise here in Central Florida um basketball was not a this was a football area and a baseball area and a golf area basketball really was had never been that big a deal other than daryl dawkins coming out of maynard evans high school uh but um, we got the city stirred up and uh, we generated interest and the, the nba was pleased with what they saw here and they granted us the franchise we kept selling them uh, on, on Orlando on the future and uh, you know you've got to take this city now because in the next 10, 20, 30 years you don't know where it's headed well Brett I'll tell you where it's headed Orlando is now the 17th largest media market in North America a uh, bigger media market than 10 current Major League Baseball cities and soon we'll catch Denver and Detroit m- moving up that list It's it's just a a growing area a tremendously growing area and uh 80 70 80 90 million tourists every year so we got it going and 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 uh, had our first draft in 1989 we took Nick Anderson from the University of Illinois the next year um 1990 we took Dennis Scott the three point shooter from Georgia Tech um and, and then, uh, just when we needed a lift, 1992, we won the draft lottery, and that was the year that Shaq was coming out of LSU, and we won it. That was a big moment. So now we had a young Nick Anderson, a young Dennis Scott, we had a very young Shaquille O'Neal, and, and the next year, 93, when we had literally no chance of winning the lottery, darn if we didn't win it again. And that's, that was the draft where we ended up with Penny Hardaway. So now we, we added Penny to that mix, and we had a young team uh, that was really, really on the, on the go. Uh, we got to the finals in 1995, lost to Houston. And the next year, in the summer of 96, was the year when it all fell apart, and that's the year that Shaq left as a free agent and went to L.A. And it took us 10 years to get over that. In 94, we win the draft lottery again. And that was the year that uh, 18-year-old Dwight Howard was coming out of high school in Atlanta. And he turned out to be an all-star center. And we got back to the finals again, you know, in the Dwight Howard era. So we've we've had plenty of ups with this franchise. We've had a whole bunch of downs as well. Uh, but that, that Shaq Penny era will never be forgotten in these parts.
1: And after the 95 season, you took over as uh, senior vice president of the Magic. At this stage, you, I mean, and to date, and, you know, from from now, Pat, looking backwards, you got 56 years in sports as an executive and two years as a minor league catcher. You got five NBA finals, 23 playoff appearances. And, and this was fascinating to me, too. You gave the, your, the first jobs to Chuck Daly, Billy Cunningham, a young Billy Cunningham in Philadelphia, Matt Gukas. Uh, you got 19 of your, your players that you've had under you uh, go on to become head coaches in the NBA. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Well, Brett,
2: uh, when you're around this long, uh, there are going to be some interesting <laughs> things happen to you. But, 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 as you mentioned, that period of '95, uh, something interesting was happening in my life. Uh, Orlando was becoming a major, major convention center, and the and these conventions were uh, convention organizations were looking for speakers. And I got a couple of opportunities that led to other opportunities. And before long, I uh, was traveling nationally on that convention speaking circuit. So that became a big part of my life. And it was in that period that, that my, uh, my writing took off. And, uh, and I started penning some books, a little realizing that as of today, that would be 118 of them that I've written. Uh, But that became a big part of my life. And then we began adopting children in this period, uh, during that period. And we ended up with a family of 19 children, uh, you know, who uh, (laughs) were from all over the world. We had uh, 14 international kids that we adopted. And uh, now we have 19 grandchildren that we're enjoying. And 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 uh, so and then came the fantasy camp, and I started running marathons. I ended up running up 58 marathons during those years, uh, including the Boston Marathon 13 times. And so I tried to branch out and uh, get into other areas of life uh, far beyond just the sports end. And I think that's uh, that's been healthy for me.
1: This is a question I think everybody out there listening would have. Okay. Sometimes I feel overwhelmed. Uh, You know, I'm a single dad and, and, uh, you know, I have four children. I have a fiance. She has three children. So essentially there's seven kids. I'm overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. I'm overwhelmed. I couldn't imagine having that many uh, do you have a school but uh, how do you go through the drive through hey dad uh, well, brett, i want to get some we, we want to get some mcdonald's how are we getting that done at the williams household
2: well brett we had a we had a uh, airport van uh, that we had for many 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 years and that van uh, well it ended up with well over a hundred thousand miles and uh, that van was vital <laughs> for for many, many years. And uh, so that's how it worked. And uh, and when you have that many kids, Brett, you, you, you throw them in the van and off we go. You know, you, you count heads, make sure we got all 18 aboard here and uh, and just plow through life. But, but I'll tell you what's bu- a beautiful thing that we're enjoying now, they're all adults. And it's, it's, uh, it's so nice to see that they have developed, by and large, they've developed friendships across the board uh, they're in touch with each other constantly. Uh, there's a real bond. There's a real uh, tie between them, by and large, and uh, and and we're we're enjoying that immensely at this point. How many turkeys
1: you buy for Thanksgiving?
2: Well, we we, uh, we I'll tell you what we <laughs> learned, Brett. Here's what we learned. We learned to cross a turkey with a centipede and and that way every child gets a drumstick. Uh don't try that but uh, <laughs> we we found that that worked pretty well. Just kidding. Uh, yeah, we we had uh, multiple multiple turkeys. Thanksgiving was a big deal. Christmas an even bigger one. Uh to this day we we never can get all of them gathered. Uh but but at Christmas we'll have well, maybe 15 of the 19, something like that, and their families. So, yeah, the holidays are a big deal, no question. We We look
1: forward to them coming, and we look forward to them ending as well. <laughs> so you know what I mean. That- yeah and and that is, it's so awesome but I was just thinking about it and you know I say it jokingly but really how do you get to spend time with each and every one and they've got their families and you're you know grandpa and great grandpa and it's like wow it's it's uh it's pretty awesome, but it's a serious thing. Like, how can you know, I haven't seen, you know, I'll just throw this out. I haven't seen Joni and, and Fred for a while. We, we got to see him. I haven't seen him in two years. I mean, when you got that many kids, it's got to be not only just uh, where they are on the map, but how do we get some time with them? Well, fortunately,
2: Brett, uh, the, the number 11 of them live in uh, Florida. So, okay. so that's extremely helpful. And... uh what I'm finding is you go see them when their kids are out, have a ball game. Uh, like, like Bobby he lives in Sarasota. He has twin boys. They're nine years old. They're ball players, and they play a, almost year round. And, uh, you know, a couple of times a month we head over there to see them play, take them to lunch and come back. And the other kids are around here to a large degree. So, uh, but there's no question. Once they get into their activities, Brett, uh, be it volleyball or cheerleading, whatever it is, they they want uh, Gigi and poppers at their games. Uh, are you coming to You you coming to our game tonight? You know they want to know that you'll be there. So we um, we spend a lot of evenings at uh, grand, grandkids' activities.
1: You keep the name straight? I'll tell you this, Pat. Bob Boone, no way. With that many kids and that many grandkids, no way he's keeping all the names straight.
2: <laughs> well, we, we're so far so good. I, I still have all my marbles, Brett. So I'm, I'm okay there. But I can <laughs> see, you know, fumbling for names. Hey, you over, come over here. You, 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 what? You, maybe on the third gr- try you get the name right. Right. But uh we we do our best to, to keep up with it. I want you to say he, hi to your daddy. He's been a friend for many many years Brett through his playing days and his managing days. He's uh he, he's a he's a, a very very close friend. And, yeah, and I, I told him I you were coming
1: him. on. Yeah, I told him you were coming on and he said give definitely give Pat uh my best and I'm sure you guys will hook up on the phone one of these days. Um You mentioned the books. And uh, for those of you listening to the Boone podcast, Pat, uh, I wrote a book probably five or six, uh, maybe six or seven years ago. And 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 speaking of Bob Boone, he said you should call Pat Williams. He's written a ton of books. And I remember having that discussion with you, and you were kind of giving me yes. some advice and Don't expect anything from the company. You're going to have to promote this thing yourself and uh, yes. get as many books as you can. I remember the the little tidbit, and and then I came. It came. It all came to fruition, and everything you said happened you know what's funny I was in recently I was back in in Cincinnati and I ran into Dave Parker yeah and he he's, he was writing a book a, he just came out with a new book and he said to me uh, Booney I know you wrote a book and you know mine's coming out and I and I started laughing and I think I'm gonna pass on what Pat taught me and I and it verbatim from what I remember from that phone call I told him everything you told me and he looked at me and he said, Really? And I said, Yep, I'm telling you, this is the way it is. And and I said, get back to me in a couple months and tell me if I was pretty much accurate or not. But I had a buddy when I heard, uh, I, I think your latest book is Revolutionary Leadership, if I'm not mistaken. And I've Brad got a buddy that helps me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a buddy that helps produce the show. And he told me, he said, Man, I want to read that book. I think he I think uh, I think he ordered it today. But um you talk Brett, about over a hundred books.
2: Brett, that's right. And the, and the most recent is called Revolutionary Leadership. Here's what we did. Uh, we went back to the, the period of the Revolutionary War and, and tried to figure out how the United States, these little 13 little colonies, how they won the war uh, over Great Britain, which was the strongest military force in the world. They had the world's strongest navy. Uh, Here are these little colonies over here. go to war with this this huge machine, and uh, eight years later, prevail and win. And uh, the the British had better everything except for one thing. Uh, The colonies had better leadership. And in this book, we take 25 leaders, men and women, some very famous, some not so much, and, and examine them as leaders and what it is they did as leaders during that, that period, that war period, and what they did and why we have a country today. So it's one of the most interesting writing projects we have had, and uh, very pleased with the outcome, revolutionary leadership. It, I think people will read it and say, oh, now now I understand how the United States was, e- was even born, how it was birthed, uh, and those, those key leaders, uh, Brett, were the reason we have a country today.
1: Very cool. Um, very sought-after speaker. If I hire you to speak, and, you know, I do a little speaking here and there, but if I hire Pat Williams to speak, what can I expect? Well, Brett, it
2: depends on the audience, but basically it's going to come down probably to one of of three topics. One, leadership. Two, teamwork. Three, uh, extreme winning uh, those are probably the three main areas that uh, that a group would be interested in. One of the three, and uh, <clears throat> so I, I usually
0: <clears throat> have a
2: phone meeting with them well in advance uh, to discuss uh, the group and the makeup of the group and and what the group might be interested in, and uh, and, and then talk about a specific topic. Uh, but but I'm finding in the corporate world, Brett, the <clears throat> those are the three topics that. Uh, most organizations are interested in how do we how do we improve as leaders? Uh, what do we have to do to build a strong team and um, and what what do the winners have? What are the qualities that uh, people that we call winners? what what is it? what's their package? what What are the ingredients of those people? Uh, so those those would be the three, Brett.
1: Baseball's back in the air for Pat Williams. Uh... Trying to bring baseball to Orlando with the uh, with an Orlando expansion team. What's your gut? You think it'll ever happen,
2: Brett? Let me give you a quick
1: background. <clears throat> this will be the this is the third attempt we've made
2: <clears throat> to bring Major League Baseball to to Orlando. Uh, the first time was the the ninety ninety one period, and uh, we we were up and running and competing with Miami and. We thought we had a great shot. We, we had named our manager already. We didn't have a team, but Bob Boone had been named as our manager. And, uh, and 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 Denny Doyle was gonna be our personnel guy. But the National League elected to put that team in Miami. We thought it was a mistake then, We I still do. And then in the mid 90s, we tried again. And this time, uh, they put the team in St. Petersburg. Uh, we thought it was a mistake then, it, 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 and believe that to this day. So now baseball has said that eventually they want to expand by two teams. They want to get to 32, and they're looking for two more markets. And we are convinced uh, that of the potential candidates, Orlando uh, has, has better credentials than, than any other area. Uh, the other thing that's going on, Brett, baseball has said this publicly, that we've got to get the situation in Oakland resolved, and St. Pete. They have two problems there, uh, trying to get new ballparks, and uh, and those are those are two thorns right now that baseball has to deal with, and and we're the Rays have six years left on their lease, and we're convinced. Uh, that uh, this would be the spot for them to move to eventually. And so we're watching that very closely, but we're definitely in the market <clears throat> to turn Orlando into a major league baseball city and uh, working hard at it and uh, keeping our eyes and ears open and uh, ready to pounce at the right time.
1: Well, I, you know, I look at the, I look at the race and, you know, I played in that ballpark and it's, you know, I, I happen to like it because I, I did well I hit well there and you, you know as from the players' perspective you don't care what the venue is if you do well if you have success that's one of your favorite venues <laughs> and I did like going to Tampa quite the contrary I didn't care for. You know, and I was playing at old Joe Robbie Stadium when they didn't have their new their new yard mm. yet. And and I couldn't stand playing there with the rain, you know, every day at four o'clock and just I didn't see the ball good. There were there were football lights at Joe Robbie Stadium. I didn't want any part of going to play the Marlins uh, back in the day. Marlins have won a couple World Series. The Tampa Bay Rays, and this is aside from where they play and the attendance they draw, done a fabulous job as an organization and what they've what they've done getting this with with the budget that they have getting to the postseason. I, I have nothing but kudos for that that franchise, that organization. But uh, interesting dynamic, interesting that uh, the thought of moving it. To, to Orlando, could the Bay, that's what Florida's had the problem with. It, it's not only the Miami Marlins, but the, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, it's, it's drawing the fans. You saw it again this year in the first round of the playoffs. Uh, you know, a lot of people noticing that a lot of empty seats, a lot of empty seats. And, and I wonder if, if Orlando would be that right mix to, to fill up those seats and, 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 you know, I remember. I remember going to even the the years that Miami was going to the postseason and to the World Series. I'd go there on a you know with the with the Reds or or uh, I, th- I think it was mostly the Reds at that time. And there'd be sixty five hundred people, maybe you know, in a in Joe Robbie, which is packing eighty thousand. So the sixty five hundred or seven thousand looks like about five people. And you know, the, the wins and losses, it doesn't really matter. You got to focus and play, but but it's cool when you go into a stadium and it's a packed house and and I know you know that so that'd be interesting and I, and I wish you wish you the best of getting that Orlando franchise i just you know if if and when we'll see but your gut is it's it's a possibility
2: well brett we have felt uh, a long, way back way back that miami never has been a good sports city it never has, uh, you know. The uh, the University of Miami, even with those great teams, struggled to draw, and the Dolphins, you know, never never drew like you would have hoped, and the Marlins always struggled. Uh, it's not a good sports city, and and then you you look over. They call it Tampa Bay, but it's not. Uh, the ballpark is in St Petersburg. And Saint Petersburg and Tampa are not sister cities. Uh, I call them hissing cousins. You know, they're you know, Saint Pete is always viewed as the little guy, with the all the old people living there. And but 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 it's a, it's basically an island, and they built that ballpark way in advance and put it on the on that island, and and uh, there they are. And from the get go, Brett, from the get go, they struggled to draw. And 25 years later, they, 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 they're no better, even, even with, with competitive teams for the most part. So, and now they have six years left on their lease. The city of St. Pete has said, at the end of this six years, we're tearing down the ballpark. We need that land uh, to develop uh, downtown St. Pete. And the rays are forced, now it's, the clock is ticking. Um, you know, for April first of twenty eight is not far. It's six years away, and and they're going to have to make some decisions soon. They they've come up with this idea of playing a a split season. Play the first half of the season in Saint Pete and the second half in Montreal. Well, Brett, nobody in their right mind can could could, could conceive of that. I can't see the players' union. Uh, wanting any part of that. And plus they want two new ballparks built. 25,000 seats open air, one in St. Pete and one in Montreal. Well, I don't see that happening and the clock's ticking. So keep your eye on that whole situation uh, in St. Petersburg. It's it's coming to a head pretty quickly.
1: Hall of Fame recognized you with the John Bunn award in 2012. Uh, Prior recipients, pretty impressive list: John Wooden, Kirk Gowdy, Red Auerbach, Larry O'Brien, Pat Summit. Uh, that's honoring your contribution to to the uh, the game of basketball. Uh, how was that for you to receive that phone call and that award? Pretty prestigious. Oh, that was over.
2: Oh, that was thrilling, Brett. I remember that came about. Well, it's getting close to ten years ago. And I remember vividly the phone call that came and they told me uh, uh, what what, what uh, honor I had won. I, I wasn't really f- all that familiar with that award, but uh, the more I reflected on it, and as you just mentioned, some of the past winners, I thought, this is pretty special. So I, I remember uh, going up to Springfield for that induction ceremony. That was, that was quite a time. And uh, to see the greats of the game had all come back and gathered there and I, I hope my remarks were significant. I, I did some reminiscing and reviewing of the past of the NBA, but uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. That was a that was certainly a highlight of my career.
1: We've covered all the accolades, all the things you've accomplished, all the things you've done. Man, so many. <laughs> not too many people I've talked to on the, have your track record and and not only the the accomplishments the accomplishments, but in such different. Aspects of sports, you know, um, really cool. Pat Williams, what message do you want to pay forward uh, from your life experiences well, Brett, to the next generation?
2: Brett, uh, let me just say this uh, directly. The, the turning point in my life uh, took place when I was 28 years old. Uh, I was running the Phillies minor league ball club in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Actually, I was 27. And I, uh, I, I made a decision to be a Christ follower, and that uh, changed the direction of my life. And, I, and ever since then, as we've talked about all of this, I, I always felt God leading and, and directing my paths. And, um, and, and these different stops, you know, came when I, I didn't know anything about them. And so I've always felt his invisible hand guiding and directing my life. And, and so I think I, I would close this uh, by making reference. You mentioned John Wooden, uh, the great UCLA coach, who's had such an influence on on this world. I've written four books about Coach Wooden, but, but Brett, he, he has always made a statement. Here it is. Make each day your masterpiece. I think that's a good challenge for all of us. Make each day your masterpiece. And, and if you'll do that every morning saying, I'm going to make this day a masterpiece day. Well, you string enough of them together. You're going to have a great life. And, and you're going to have an enormous influence on others. Make each day your masterpiece. Maybe that's my best challenge tonight.
1: That is awesome. Awesome advice. Pat Williams, thank you so much. It's, this has been a lot of fun for me. Been an honor. And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end is we bring in the voice of the po- podcast, Dan Levy, to ask a question from the fans. Dan.
0: Gentlemen, how are ya? Hello, Dan. How you doing? <laughs> doing good. <laughs> All right. This one comes from Jimmy in Orlando. Pat, name three people that have helped you become the person that you are today.
2: Oh, boy. Well, aside from my parents, I would have to point out uh, – uh, Bill Veck, the baseball promoter, uh, Mr. R. E. Littlejohn, who was the owner of the Spartanburg Phillies, who had an enormous uh, impact on me, and the other one would be Bob Carpenter. He was the longtime owner of the Philadelphia Phillies. He gave me my first
0: opportunity
2: as in the as a player and then in the front office. And those are the three names that come to mind immediately.
0: All right, Mr. Williams, thank you so much for coming on the Brett Boo podcast. We appreciate it, sir.
2: Good to talk to all of you. Uh, Thanks a million, guys, and uh, all the best to you.
0: Mailbag. Hey, Boone. Yes. You know that sound, don't you? It is mailbag time. Mailbag time. And this one comes from Brett in Seattle. Brett, do you ever get friendly with the umps, and what do you talk about when you're out on the field with them? Without a doubt, umps are your friends.
1: Uh, Every, every, um, uh, every series you have four umpires and the advantage I have is playing second base. I'm always dealing with one on it. You know, there's always the the second base umpire. So before the game, uh, you know, in between innings, whenever there's a down moment, I was always talking with the umpires. Cause you know why? Cause in two days he's going to be calling balls and strikes. They go from second to first to, to home to third in, in a, in a, uh, That's that. Yeah, that's the rotation. It it served me no good to be not friends with the umpire. And it, it, it was as simple as some guys had come in and I'd bust their chops, give them a hard time about something. You know, we had Joe West on the podcast, one of the original guys on the podcast and, and I'd come in and I'd give him a hard time about his weight. He'd give me a hard time about my height, but that was how we kind of bonded, and and I always found that it's not an advantage to be at odds with the umpire. So, yeah, I always chit chat, always got along. Actually, liked the majority of the umpires. I'd say ninety percent of the umpires I consider buddies, and and uh, but it never hurts to be to have a buddy calling balls and strikes. It may be the difference of that close pitch that could go either way and the human you know the human factor takes over and it's a ball whereas if he had a bad feeling about me it might be a strike and i and i'm not questioning their their integrity anything or anything like that it's just the the human part of the game so yes i i was pretty friendly with all the umpires
0: and just a quick side note what would happen if you referred to one of them as blue oh that's, that's, that's
1: a no, no. <laughs> I did that. I did that in a ball and and that's just professional versus amateur in college. People, they're always referred to as blue. And when I was in college, I'd say hey, blue, can you give me a step to the left, step to the right? I was in a ball. And I said that my, one of my first series uh, in professional baseball in the Carolina league. And I said, Hey blue, can you give me a move? You know, two steps to the right. He called timeout. He turned to me and he said, Brett, I'll tell you this. My name is, I forget what his name is. Let's call him Bob for now. My name's Bob. I ain't blue. Are we clear on that? I said, Bob, Could I get two steps to the right? He said, absolutely. And that's the last time I called a professional umpire blue.
0: That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. All right, let's dig on back on into the bag, shall we? Let's do it, Dan. Jose in Simi Valley wants to know this, Brett, Do you ever go to USC football games? I do. I do. Uh, I try to get there
1: once a year Um, this year. We're going to I'm going to do one in a couple of weeks. But, yeah, once a year, I try to get out and and, uh, support and check a game out and and maybe bring my kids and so they can check it out. So uh, I I don't like the trek uh, because that's an all day event going to L.A., Uh, in the traffic and the parking but once you get there it's cool and and I do it for my kids I think last year I took my daughter Uh, this year I'm going to take all the boys but uh, yeah it's something I like
0: to do at least get up there once a year All right, well, that's going to do it for this year's Brett Boone Podcast. And my name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer of the Boone Podcast, Rich Herrera. Digital content gets handled by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, Give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Moon Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. That'd be pretty awesome of you if you did. For all of us here on the Moon Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. Do it again soon. See ya.